welcome uh, if you're not visiting anyway. Uh, I bet you're here as a regular. It's really nice to see you. Um, some of you will have met me before. Um, I come from Torquay. Uh, I'm a part-time uh, preacher, but uh, most of my time I'm a GP in Paynton in South Devon. And I'm really glad to be here at this beautiful, beautiful midsummer's evening and um, to speak to you. But the subject that we're looking at is quite a difficult one. It's quite challenging. We're going to look at it together. As you're looking at uh, your series on the Sermon on the Mount, words that Jesus spoke uh, to his disciples uh, on a mountain to teach them. And we're going to um, continue that series, and we're going to read from Matthew 5, and we're going to start at verse 21 through to verse 26. You have heard it's that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. I'm just going to pray, and then we will look at that passage. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your word, which uh, reveals much uh, to us of yourself, of your goodness and your grace and your mercy, but also offers to us a challenge your word which is incisive, your word which cuts through uh, the barriers that we put up against you and against people. And so, Father, I pray that as we read these words and as we look at them together, that your spirit would come and, Lord, your spirit would challenge us, your spirit would uh, show us and reveal to us uh, more of you and more of your grace and more of your mercy. Lord, it's a sensitive subject, and I just pray for us all as we think about this area of relationships, of anger, of what it means to live as community. I pray that you would watch over us and guard us against things uh, that are accusatory, the, the voices that accuse us, but rather instead we would hear the deep, still voice of your Spirit who wants to change us for our good who wants to repair and restore and mend and heal. So I commit this time to you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, I don't know, I'm a bit behind the times now, not that trendy, bit passe, but I wonder whether anyone here is wearing anything that's got the label Adidas or Puma on it. Anybody? I've got an Adidas top. They're not cool anymore. What's cool? Hollister? I don't know. What's cool? Nike? don't know. No one's got, I don't know, no one's got, no, you're not into labels, that's, that's a good thing. 
Adidas and Puma um, were two companies, they're two famous companies that produced sportswear and, and particularly they started with sportswear. I have actually got an Adidas t-shirt, so I'm not very cool, but um, they were started, these two companies, by two brothers, two Germans, uh, the Dazzler brothers, uh, Adolf, known as Addy, and Rudolf, known as Rudy. And they started their business in the 1920s. They started it together out of their uh, mother's laundrette room. Uh, Addy was the creative one who designed the shoes, and Rudolf had a bit more of a, a business mind, and uh, they were so successful that they began to produce their sports shoes. Uh, and uh, what really was their big breakthrough was when they designed a pair for Jesse Owens, who won, I think, four gold medals at the 1936 Munich Olympics. And from that point, their business uh, boomed. So they became a global business even in the 1930s. But it wasn't long into uh, their business uh, time that their relationship as brothers began to sour. They had two wives that unfortunately didn't get along. There were little niggles. And then one day, a comment was overheard, uh, one person saying uh, about, about the other, which actually wasn't about them. I'm not going to say it because it was quite rude. Um, but it was a comment that one of the wives heard and was misunderstood as being about them. And thus began a 60-year feud. Uh, the business was at that point divided. So what was uh, uh, this, the business of the two brothers into Adidas and into Puma, Puma? And their feud escalated, and they began to blame each other for all sorts of misfortunes that happened in their life. And they built two factories in the town, one on each side of a river that divided the town. And the feud began to spread out uh, amongst the town, and it began to affect everybody in it until actually, and this is a true story, it became impossible to date or to marry somebody who worked at the other factory. People would look at each other in the street, they would check out the footwear, and if it wasn't the right footwear, then they wouldn't talk to you. And, and that was absolutely true. And they became so engrossed in their feud, these two uh, companies, that they completely missed the rise of Nike, who would become a, a much bigger, much more successful global athletic uh, footwear company. And it was only after 60 years, in 2009, did the two companies do something to end this feud. And there we have some pictures of it, the two uh, 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 managing directors of the companies uh, and... Um, they played this football match together, and, and that was symbolic of an ending of this bitter feud, this bitter anger that had um, occurred between these two brothers. And by this point, the two brothers had, of course, died. And even now, they're buried in the opposite ends of the cemetery in the town where they had their factories. It's a true story of how anger, bitterness, and resentment between brothers dragged in their wives, their children, and a whole town. So we're in this uh, series of talks on the Sermon of the Mount. Jesus has gone up the mountain and he's teaching his disciples essentially about how to do life well. It's ethical and moral teaching. And what underpins all this teaching is what God has always been asking of his people. Last week, you looked at uh, the passage where it talks about uh, how the law uh, still remains, even though Jesus has come. It's a confusing passage. But what, what, what Jesus is saying here, that everything that underpinned the law is what underpins his teaching. 
And the summary Jesus gives of that teaching is to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and to love neighbor. Love, we know, is of supreme value to God. And so it's not really a surprise that as Jesus begins his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he starts with relationships and particularly our relationship with others and particularly in this area of anger and resentment and bitterness. We all get angry, of course. If I got you to, I'm not going to because I've made you come forward, I'm not going to pick on you, but if I got you to stand up if you ever get angry, we'll all stand up, won't we? We know uh, that we all get angry. We know that we live in a world where it's not all as it should be. We're fallen people in a fallen world. We read in the Bible that there is such a thing as righteous anger. We know that God gets angry and yet God is perfect and God is good. It is possible to have righteous anger, although we need to be a little bit careful when we're applying that to ourselves. I think, because often uh, in our anger, we think we're right, but we're not always right. Jesus here is talking about how we should respond to anger, both our own and to others, how to live well and how to live differently as his people. They're difficult words, though, aren't they? It's difficult teaching. It's, it's tempting, I think, to take something of the cutting edge out of Jesus's words. But in this passage we've read, Jesus likens anger or contempt towards a brother or a sister to murder. And that's really difficult for us, I think, to get our heads around because we think surely, surely anger cannot be the same as murder. But there it is in the passage. Anyone who says to his, where were we, a bit further, a bit before, Uh, You've heard it said, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. What Jesus is doing here, he's tracing something as terrible as murder back to its roots. Or as one commentator says, to the dark lair in human hearts, which is hatred. The anger Jesus is talking about is the anger of pride, of vanity, of hatred, of malice, and revenge. And as we read this passage, it's important to uh, note that there are two Greek words for uh, anger. Greeks have lots of words. We have one word, they have many. And there are two words for anger. One is uh, thumos, which is the kind of anger that sort of flares up in an instant, like a big whoosh of fire, and then it's all gone and forgotten. But the word that Jesus used in this passage is this word here, August, I can't even say it, orgesesthai. And that anger is a smoldering anger, a kind of anger of resentment, the kind of anger which a person nurses and feeds to keep it from going out, the kind of anger which someone broods over and simply will not allow to die. This is the kind of anger where we add fuel to the fire rather than doing what we can to put it out. And this is the kind of anger that is very dangerous to us as people because it leads to resentment, to us re-feeling a hurt over and over again and rehearsing the story and telling it and retelling it to others and keeping our anger alive. And this type of anger can be a dangerous thing. In this passage, Jesus says at the end of uh, verse where are we? Verse 22. He says that if we say these angry words to our brothers and sisters, anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. 
And that word there is Gehanna. And Gehanna is a valley that's uh, uh, just to the southwest of Jerusalem, which was kind of a big, large kind of dumping ground where people burnt rubbish. And it was a place that smoldered day and night. And Jesus is showing us that anger is for our own souls a dangerous thing. Frederick Buchner, a, a spiritual writer, says this about anger. He says, of the seven deadly sins... Anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you're giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. So as we read this, it's challenging and difficult teaching. So what then is to be done? Well, I love this passage uh, as I've read it because Jesus here just gives us some really good practical help and advice. And the title of the series that you're looking at is Habits of the Heart. And we know that what happens inside of us does affect the outside. What happens on the inside of us matters. So we're going to look at what habits of the heart Jesus encourages here to help us in this area of anger. And as I uh, look at this and as we apply it, we're going to really think about it in terms of how we apply it to church life. Um, But that wasn't how Jesus uh, looked at it. He he was looking really at the whole area of human relations. But I'm going to think about this in terms of church. There we have up there, Who's that? Anyone know? It's Homer, bless him, and his x-ray, and his very tiny brain. Uh, And the reason I put that up there is because uh, when uh, Jesus uses these two words uh, that people use uh, as a form of contempt and crossness with another person, uh, we're going to just unpack what those two words mean. So raka in this passage has been kept in the Greek because actually it's a very difficult word to translate and nobody really properly understands what it means. But it sort of means empty-headed, hence Homer up there. Um, it's an insult to a person's intelligence or the way that he thinks. The second word, you fall, although we might think that's perhaps more to do with someone's intelligence, is actually more of a slur on someone's moral character. It's about, it's, it's calling someone a scoundrel, and it's um, casting sort of, um, you know, suspicions on their, on their morality, if you like. And both terms uh, that are used here in this passage are terms of utter contempt for another person. And so our first application is this uh, habit of positive speech. The habit of positive speech. Because what we say with our mouths, what we say with our mouths really does matter. Raka and you fool are words which insult, which show contempt for another, which have the potential to destroy a person's reputation and take someone's good name away. Later on in Scripture, James uh, writes a letter, probably the brother of Jesus, and he writes this letter, and he urges us to keep a tight rein on our tongues as believers, to guard what we say. He says this, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Inevitably, 
people do things that will upset or hurt us. And our natural response can be one of anger in church life, with words that spill out, not just to the person, but often to third parties, often not to the person at all. And perhaps it comes out as kind of a gossip or a little uh, snide um, or little kind of digs now and again to other people. If we look at verse 21 in the message translation, Eugene Peterson translates it as this. The simple moral fact is that words kill. Speech and what we say can hurt and harm James likes it to, likens it to a forest fire that wreaks havoc. And this kind of speech can certainly wreak havoc in the life of a church. We have to be careful about how we share our anger. Sometimes it is important to go to another person. It's not right to deny anger and just to push it down and pretend it doesn't exist. In this passage and later on in Matthew, uh, Jesus talks about going to the person who either you have offended or who has offended you and trying to sort it out with them in church life. But sometimes that's, that's difficult, and sometimes that's not always possible. And so perhaps sometimes we do need to share it with another person, with someone that we trust. But it should be with the hope that we can restore and reconcile, and not really as a way to justify ourselves or to put down someone else or just to bear our anger uh, in order to um, make, our, make our own position clear. And uh, I once heard this uh, very useful tool for if we ever find ourselves in a position in church life where we really feel this urge to spill the beans on another person or to gossip or if we feel wronged by someone and we want to say someone. It's pretty trite, it's a little bit, but if we have the next slide. It's this word think. That as we um, think, as, we, as we're about to say something about someone else, not to the person, but to someone else about a third party, we think, is it true Is it helpful? Is what I'm about to say inspiring? Is it necessary? And is it kind? When we are angry, all kinds of things can come out. And there's a temptation just to mouth off about another person. But think, is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says at the beginning of his teaching, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. We can learn to cultivate habits of peace rather than habits of discord by watching what we say to others about someone else. Well, the second habit uh, is the habit of humbleness. I couldn't really think of a good word. The habit of humbleness. What I really want to call it is the habit of first moves. Because uh, Jesus now gives two illustrations uh, in this passage about making the first move. He doesn't really make a judgment on whether the person is in the right or in the wrong. He just encourages them to make the first move. The first illustration he gives is someone who's gone to the temple to offer a sacrifice, and by that we mean like an animal, uh, a sheep. So imagine the man with his sheep, takes it to the altar, and he remembers suddenly at the altar in Jerusalem that someone else is angry with him or bears a grudge with him. And so what uh, Jesus says is this man should tie up his lamb 
uh, and he should leave the lamb at the altar, and he should leave and go back and sort things out. But of course, Galilee, where Jesus was teaching, was actually three days away from Jerusalem. So this image is one of a man who leaves the sheep, travels three days back to Galilee, sorts out the problem, travels three days back again, hopes the sheep's still there, and then gets ahead with his sacrifice. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's, he's taking an illustration, it's an exaggeration, but he's using this illustration to say how important it is that we get our relationships with each other right. And that God values relationship above looking religious and above religious activity. That what's going on inside is more important than what we're looking like on the outside. Jesus isn't saying to push the anger down, to cover it up or pretend it's not happening, but rather to go and to try and be reconciled with the other person. Whether we think we're in the right or whether we think we're in the wrong, someone, and someone in church life often, has to make the first move. We can only do what we can. It won't always be received. It won't always be possible. But we can only do what we can. Tom Wright uh, says this in the light of this passage. He says, all of us will at times need to find a way to climb down off the high pedestal on which we have placed ourselves, abandoning feelings of superiority over the person you are angry with. I could certainly apply that to times in my life when I have felt angry. A need to climb down and to be humble and to make the first move. It's hard, but it's not impossible because Jesus is teaching it to us. And he is telling us that he's here to show us a different way and that his spirit is here to help us and is at work in us, changing us, molding us, shaping us to be the people that he so wants us to be. A habit of first moves, not always waiting for someone to come to us, but stretching out our hands in peace. The second illustration I'm going to call the whirlpool effect. And uh, Jesus uses this illustration of someone who's being taken to court. uh, And what he's saying to them is, uh, what he says in this illustration is, sort the problem out, the disagreement out, why you are on the way before it escalates into something that's completely out of control. And these days, most of our fallouts in church won't ever make it to court, thank God. But in Jesus' time, disputes uh, amongst people um, would have gone to a group of village elders, first of all, and then to a judge, and then to an officer. And in this illustration, Jesus is describing an escalation of events with more and more people being drawn in. And I guess many of us, if we've been in church for any length of time, have sometime have seen this happen, this whirlpool effect in church life. Two people fall out. It starts as a disagreement between two people, and it may be trivial, or it may be big, it may be fundamental. It may simply be personality differences. It may be a difference of opinion over what kind of instruments should be at the front of the church. It may be a disagreement over whether there should be pews or chairs. It may be a careless word that actually was insulting, but was just a careless word. And it happens between two people. 
But slowly, like a whirlpool, their disagreement turns and turns, and it begins to suck other people in, slowly at first. Their spouses, their children, their friends, their small group, a church leadership team, their pastors, the church community. Wider and wider it can grow as more people get involved and get sucked into a disagreement that many times on, no one can remember how it started. This type of anger can be, as we talked about, a smoldering fire, something that we feed and nurture and just won't let it go out. But Jesus here is saying, whenever we can, take the opportunity to do something about it before this happens. Don't let things fester. Don't let things get out of control. But try and sort it out as soon as we can. Quarrels can go on for generations. It's the story of Puma and Adidas, a whole town being sucked into two people's angry feud. If one of those parties had simply humbled themselves and nipped it in the bud, it could all have been different. So douse the fire, I think Jesus is saying here. Douse the fire when we can. Pour water on it when we can. Try and settle things before it becomes more and more difficult. Paul, the apostle, says in his letter to the Romans, if it's possible, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as we can, as far as it's possible, we try. The third and final habit we're going to talk about is that of prayer, the habit of prayer. It's not in this passage, but it comes a little bit later in verse 44. Jesus says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Perhaps those that we are angry with, that we fall out with, particularly in church, are not always our enemies. They are our friends, our family, they are our brothers and sisters. But what we can do is pray to our Father for them, for ourselves, and for the situation. It may not dissolve our anger. We may not feel better for it. But but it is, I believe, a habit of the heart that does shift us and that does change us. It may remind us that the other person for whom we are praying is also a child of God who also makes mistakes and sometimes make poor, makes poor choices, just as we do. Sometimes it shifts our perspective and helps us realize that the problems that we have in relationships are often co-created and that we need to confess our own part in the problem. It may be that as we pray, all we can manage to do is to hold that person before God in our mind's eye. It's too much, it's too painful to say anything else. It's too raw to find the words. But I believe that in itself is a start. Praying for those who are against us, those with whom we are angry, those who are angry with us, those with whom our relationships have broken is, I believe, powerful in their life and in ours. And whatever effect it has on us or on the situation, we do it anyway because Jesus has told us to. Well, I'm going to uh, finish up in a minute.
But in a minute, we're going to uh, take communion together. We're gathered around this table. And I'm really glad we're taking communion. Uh, it's the third Sunday, and it's your, it's your communion night. But it's really important that we're taking communion together because I know, you know, that human relationships are complex and difficult and that we as people are complex and difficult, that we do fall out, get angry, get upset. People do things that are distressing and painful to us, that are sinful and wrong, and that can be extremely damaging to us. And, this may, and these things may take many, many years, many, many years to come to terms with, to heal. They may take, you may need much help for these to be mended. But the Sermon on the Mount, although it might seem impossible, is not an impossible way to live because Jesus has shown us a better way and a life to aspire to a life that pleases God and helps us live well together. But Jesus, of course, did much more than that. He came for all of us for the times when we do mess up, for the times when we can't mend these relationships, for the times when we are angry, for the times when we do sin, when the times when we do fail to relate to each other as children of God. Jesus' words have challenged me this week. They, they genuinely have. And we need this grace, all of us, that is represented here at this table as we think about this area of relationships with each other. These words tonight are difficult. But the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, that the word of God is full of living power. It is sharper than the sharpest knife, cutting deep into our innermost thoughts and desires. It exposes us for what we really are. Nothing in all creation can hide from him. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. This is the God to whom we must explain all that we have done. That would make me really anxious, those words, if it wasn't for the very next paragraph because the writer says this this is why we have a great high priest who has gone to heaven he is jesus the son of god let us cling to him and never stop trusting him because this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses for he faced all of the same temptations we do yet he did not sin so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it. That is what this table is about. It's about coming just as we are and receiving the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God. Of approaching him with confidence in spite of who we are or where we find ourselves. His broken body is for our brokenness, for our broken relationships and for our broken hearts. His blood washing away our sin, but also our brother and sister's sin and also the stain of their sin on our lives. 
And that's what we remember as we celebrate communion here tonight. It's a table of reconciliation, of a right relationship restored between us and God, and a right relationship restored between us and our brothers and sisters. A communal meal, a meal that we share together, made possible through the body and the blood of Christ. Well, we're going to pause uh, before we do that. I'm just going to give uh, everyone just a chance in silence uh, and in private just to think about those relationships that are perhaps difficult, that perhaps we might need to make a first move on, that perhaps uh, are painful and that all we can do in this minute is just hold it before God and ask for his healing touch. Or maybe we do need to say sorry and we need to resolve this week to go and do something, resolve to some action. So we're just going to spend that time uh, before God now. Father, we want to say that we are, we are truly sorry for the times that we've messed up. The times we've messed up in our thinking, in our actions, and in what we have left unspoken, and in what we haven't done. Forgive us, Lord, when we have hung on to anger and to bitterness, and we have let things burn and fester, when we have pulled people down with our words instead of building up. We are sorry for our unlove. But we know, God, that it is your nature to have mercy on us out of your great goodness and compassion. And we stand on the promise of your word, which says that when we bring our sins, our wrongs, our mistakes to you, when we bring our poor choices, our hurts, our pains to you, you are faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us, and make us whole. We praise you, Lord. We thank you for all that you've done for us. Amen.